Hello and welcome to Restoration Church's Teaching of the Week. If this is your first time, welcome. So glad that you were able to join us. If you'd like to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about restoration, you can go to restorationaz.org. And with that said, we hope you enjoy this week's teaching from Nate Huss. Over the past five, six years, however long we've been a church now, we've done some really long series. We were in Mark for basically the entire time that we've been a church, other than a few weeks. And then we went into Exodus, and we were in that for quite a while, other than our practices. We're going back into Exodus today, um, going through the Ten Commandments. And so I'm excited for that. I'm really personally, like honestly, deeply excited. If you can't hear it in my voice, it's actually there. I just don't actually like appear excited, but I deeply am because I'm not teaching today. That's not why I'm excited. I'm excited for who will be teaching today. And that's uh, my good friend, Nate, who is our, our worship pastor. And here's why. Nate uh, is not only just truly a dear friend uh, that God has graced me with. It's been a huge blessing in my life. Nate has taught me so much. Uh, taught me so much about uh, what it means to, to be a leader, how to be a husband to my wife, father to my kids, how to follow Jesus. He's taught me so much about what it looks like to embrace the love and to know Christ more. And so I'm thankful that you're going to get to learn from him as well today. Thanks, man. Such kind words. Holy cow. I love you. I love you too. I love you. What he doesn't know, I talk about it a lot, just my wife and I, um, what a, what a deep impact it has been to, to link Shields with Landon. Um, I'm going to get into my story a little bit, so I'm not going to peel back too much, but just <sighs> the gift to have a safe place to be honest and to journey together. So I love you, and I'm thankful for you. Your leadership has been so impactful in my life, which has bled into my family, and so thank you for who you are, man. Yeah. Um, Woo! We crying before we got started. (laughs) Holy moly, I need tissues right now. Um, Yeah, so like Landon mentioned, we've been in Exodus for a while, and uh, I don't know how much longer we're going to be in it, but I just don't see the horizon yet, so buckle your seatbelts. Today, we're just going to hit one of the Ten Commandments. But if you're new or you've maybe just forgotten, um, just a couple quick notes. The nation of Israel was enslaved by Egypt, okay? Um, God raised up a leader named Moses to lead these people out of slavery. Uh, the Egyptian pharaoh saw the prosperity of the Israelites and decided to murder the children, have them thrown into the Nile. Pretty brutal. And uh, Moses' mother protected him, put him in a basket, sent him down the Nile River in front of the palace. Pharaoh's daughter finds him, adopts him, then pays Pharaoh's, I mean, ooh, not Pharaoh's, Moses' mother to raise him, which is, what a cool, like, When you read the scriptures, man, you see the thread of God's goodness through it. It's pretty wild. So Moses' mom gets to raise him through his young formative years before he's then taken into the palace to be raised as a prince. So kind of a big deal. Now we fast forward. Moses now comes back and is leading the people out of slavery into the wilderness. And these people have no context for life outside of what they've experienced in Egypt. 
Okay, so 400 years plus of slavery and the only context for life is under the, the kingship or the ruleship, the dominion of Pharaoh. So spiritually, physically, they're under his dominion, okay? And um, so now they've been led out of Egypt into the wilderness. And here we pick up where now Yahweh, God, wants to create a new framework, a new foundation, like a trellis, a healthy structure for which they're going to move forward in healthy growth in their life. So he's going to create these new structures. And so we get into the Ten Commandments. It's then going to peel into a whole bunch of other stuff that he lays before them. And his intent is that he wants to create a way of life that is good, that will point them back to who he is and all he has done for them. Because he is their savior, he is their safe place, and he is their judge. Okay? So, if you don't mind, we're going to read this together. We're going to go to Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to read this scripture together. I'll just read it off the screen with you. Then God spoke all these words. Ready? Read this with me. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not have other gods besides me. Now, this is an assumed you. So he's speaking to the Israelites with a clear assumption, knowing that they've come out of a place where there's been tons of false deities, false gods, idol worship, all this stuff. And now he's creating a new way of life that they are to have no other gods put beside him, okay? I... Two, have other gods that I have placed beside or before or above him. And I'm going to assume that you too have had gods that you've placed above, before, or beside him. For me, uh, as we journey through the story of the Israelites, like you have a story, I've got a story. And some of our stories have been awesome. Some of our stories haven't been so awesome. Some of the parts of our stories have been awesome and other parts haven't been as awesome. Um, for me, I have an awesome story and a wild story and a weird story. And it all culminates into, I am so excited what God has done. And I wanna just share a little bit of that this morning. So first, before I dive into anything, again, I'm Nate Huss. If I haven't met you, I apologize. Nice to meet you. That's an air handshake for anyone who's like, what is he doing? <laughs> oh my gosh, I feel so embarrassed right now. Um, I am married to the beautiful Emily Huss. I think we've got a picture. That is us together. Apparently I don't own any other pairs of pants. Because <laughs> that's what I'm wearing. Um, baby, will you take me shopping? Um, we will be heading into our 16th year of marriage here in a few months. And uh, my oldest daughter was here singing this morning, Lila. She just turned 14. She was our honeymoon baby. Yeah, waste no time. Um, my 12-year-old Naomi, or she'll soon to be 12, 12 in December. And then um, our youngest, Elliot, is four and a half. And he has blonde hair, blue-green eyes. And when I take him out in public, people are like, nah, fam, that ain't his. But he's mine. He's all mine. Um, and uh, yeah, I had the privilege of growing up in, in, in uh, a, such a unique family. So um, I was born in Phoenix, Arizona. 
to a woman who was an office administrator at a hospital. And uh, she um, had an affair with the doctor who owned that hospital. And uh, they put her on a leave of absence and they paid all of her expenses to have her live in obscurity for nine months while she carried me in the womb. And then when I was born, I was given up for adoption. I'm gonna say this a whole bunch today. What you believe will rule you. What you believe in, what you believe about yourself and what you believe about others will rule you. It'll have an authority over you that you can't shake until there's a renewing of your mind, okay? So I was born. Um, some of you have heard of Christian Family Care. That's a, an adoption agency that's so crazy. Restoration was already partnered with before I came here. That's the agency that I was adopted through. And uh, when I was born, there was a family that was all picked out, ready to, they'd gone through the whole home study thing and they were ready to adopt me. And uh, then they found out that I was a mixed baby. Some of you aren't sure what I am. I'm half black, half white, just to clarify, settle any questions. Um, and uh, they decided they didn't want to have an interracial child in their family. And so the second family in line made the same decision. And the third family in line made the same decision. And so a month after being born, the adoption agency calls my family and they say, yo, you got lots of kids, there's seven of them already, and they're all mixed. How'd you guys like for one more? <laughs> and so... These are my siblings. This is our colorful, dynamic family that I got to be raised in. My parents received that phone call on a Friday. They prayed about it over the weekend, consoled with counsel, talked with their other seven children. Half of them were like, nah, and some of them were like, yeah. And they went on Monday and they picked me up. And I became a hus. This is another picture of my parents in it. This is like circa 1987 right here. Heck yeah. Look at that hairdos, all of them hairdos. Um, that was the longest all of us boys had our hair, by the way. After that, my dad decided we all had to have shaved heads. That was crazy, holy cow. Um, what a dynamic upbringing. Um, and again, I'll say it again. What you believe will rule you. What you believe will rule you. And I was brought up in a, in a, a Christian home, a God-fearing home. That was also really broken. And I incurred a lot of trauma. And for the majority of my life, I bought the lie that I didn't belong and that at some point, no matter who they were, they, they would leave me, that I would be left behind. I was convinced. So I lived life with a battle axe and a shield, ready to defend and cut anyone's head off who opposed me. And I fought for everything, everything that I had. Whether I needed to or not, I didn't know any better. I believed that I had to prove myself, that I had to fight for something. And the culture of Christianity that I grew up in, there was 
It was a lot of oppression. To be honest, it was pretty heavy-handed. Occurred a lot of physical abuse, a high level of exposure to chaotic sexual stuff at an early age. And it shaped me. It, it shaped me. What I believed, <laughs> what I believed ruled me. What do you believe? What do you believe about yourself? What's been spoken over you? If we dive a little bit deeper into this, this Exodus packet, or passage, do not have other gods besides me. I want to peel back a couple of definitions because I think this is really important. When we, when we talk about other gods, it's easy for us to just make the assumption that, well, I don't go to like some weird pagan temple or go out in the forest and do weird seances or whatever. So, and, and we maybe miss what God is actually saying in this moment, what, what Yahweh is saying to the people of Israel in their context and in their moment, but is also now speaking to us in our current context, in our current moment. So let me break down a couple of these words. And he says, do not have other gods besides me. That first word God is the word Elohim. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament. It means God or gods. You see it all the time, okay? And we attribute it to God or gods really easy, really quickly. And we kind of skip over the, the deeper portion of what that word really means. So when we dive a little bit deeper, we find out that the word actually means judge, ruler, divine ones, angels, Kind of get the drift on that, right? Do not have any other judges, rulers, divine ones, angels besides me, okay? Now that word besides, dive in, it's two words, al pane, okay? Al means above, over, upon, or against. So do not have any other judges, rulers, above, before, against me, Okay? And then pane means before or besides. And then if we take a little bit deeper dive, the word actually refers to the portion of your face that turns or looks toward something, okay? Kind of cool, right? When you like take a little deeper dive. So do not have any other Elohim, judges, rulers, divine ones that you, al pane, turn to above before or besides me, okay? Now, it's really important to note that this word elpine never means accept me. And this is fascinating. I'm not sure why. We have other contexts, and I'll read them in just a moment. There's other contexts where it does, does specifically say there is no other God except me. But at this time, in this moment, this, these words, it does not say accept me. And what I think is fascinating about it is God does appoint rulers and judges over the nation of Israel that are in a positional authority beneath him, right? They're not the ultimate authority. And so for us in our life, we have really good stuff. I don't know how you grew up. I grew up where like everything was bad. You know, like you dance is bad. You got long hair is bad. If you're women, you have short hair is bad. If you wear makeup is bad. You wear jewelry, it's bad. Like everything was bad. All the time bad. All we could listen to was Southern gospel. It was crazy. Oh my gosh. There are a lot of things 
that are really good that God has created that we in, in, in our humanity have totally distorted. We really have broken them and it matters. And also in turn, we've turned to other gods. I wanna peel back another scripture really quick before we keep going. Um, I wanna jump over to Isaiah chapter 45, verse 21. And I'm not gonna dive through the whole thing, but in, in part, Isaiah is a prophet that is beckoning the people of Israel back. And he's reminding them of all that God has done up to this point, okay? And he is, he is revealing, you know, all of these gods. So this is, this is years after they've been brought out of, out of slavery. They keep going back. It's like in the New Testament it talks about like a dog going back to his vomit, right? So we kind of go back to our old ways. Do you ever feel that way? Like... Just keep going back to bad habits until there's a renewing of your mind. Until you're able to be honest with yourself and honest with others, you will continue to dine at the table of vomit. I know that's brutal. Yeah? Okay? So, he is redeeming, he has redeemed his people. He's brought them out of slavery and then they forget him. They go back to idol worship and all this stuff. And so Isaiah is painting this new picture and it says this, was it not I, Yahweh, there is no other God but me, a righteous God and Savior. There is no one except me. Was it not I, Yahweh? That word Yahweh means self-existent or eternal one. Like, he's God, God. Like, before you had the ability, before all humanity had the ability to create gods, he was already God. Like, first, last, beginning, and the end, you know, was, is, and is to come. Like, he is God, God. Like, when a war starts, the last one standing, Jesus, okay? All the things that we turn to, all the things that we go to at the end of the day, <laughs> I'm gonna dive into mine in a minute. When we turn to these things, they will fail us, they will let us down. When the war rages, at the end of it all, the only God that will be standing is Yahweh, okay? But what we believe will rule us. What you believe about this God that we serve will rule you. What you believe about your life, your story, what people have spoken over you will rule you. When all is said and done, when all else fails, Yahweh, the eternal one, will be the only God standing. Was it not I, Yahweh, the eternal one? There is no other God, Elohim. That's the same word that we read in Exodus, Elohim. There's no other judge, ruler, divine being, nothing but me. But me is actually a Hebrew word uh, that, that uh, it's, it's mil bade, and it actually means a part of, connected to. There's no other God connected to him, right? So in history, we've seen like the sun God, the moon God, the God of sex, the God of war, like you as God and your pride and your ego, my pride and ego. There's nothing else that is connected to him. He is God and God alone. There's no other God, Elohim, but me, a righteous God and savior. And this is important at this time for these people in this place, at this context, and we need to hear this. So God, Elohim, is their judge. And then savior means safe place. For just a moment. Do you think of Jesus as your safe place? When you 
you think about your journey through faith, when you think about your journey as a Christian, I think sometimes it's probably easy for us to see him as a judge, maybe. Maybe that's been leaned to a little bit more. Maybe not. Or maybe you've leaned towards a safe place, but the question is, is he your safe place? Can you think of him as your safe place? That Hebrew word savior is yasha, safe place, so good. So Yahweh, the eternal one, he is God. He is your judge, he's your ruler. And when all else fills, when all things are falling apart, he's your safe place. Is he your safe place only when the world is falling in around you? Like that medicine cabinet, you know what I'm saying? Like you get that headache and you like run over there like, oh my gosh, I get migraines. You know, take the migraine. Or are we able to sit before his feet consistently, constantly, in every moment? Is he your safe place? When you get that promotion at your job, is he your safe place to go celebrate? I'll be honest, that has been so hard for me. I grew up a little bit more on the other side where I definitely saw God as judgmental. Shoot, if I make a mistake, I'm going to get hammered. What we believe will rule us. I, um, when you take a moment, when I take a moment, when we take a moment and think about our stories, what are the gods that we've put in place? What are the gods that we turn to that maybe we don't even realize? But now as we look back through our history and you think about a moment of trauma, a moment of hurt, a moment of frustration, a moment of confusion, a financial crisis, a death in the family. What did you turn to? What did you run to first? Landon, a couple weeks ago, kind of painted a picture of some gods that maybe we could have. He said, pleasure, the God of sex, power, control, Escape, comfort, the God of progress and the hope that it gives us, garage doors and security systems, 401ks, political parties and the ideologies and visions that they create for us. Fear of people's perception of us. I think for some of us, that's a really big one. I know for me, it is, it's, been a, it's been a ruler in my life. My overvalued, maybe you can relate with this, an overvalued sense of self in the form of comfort or perceived perception for people, how you want to look, how you want to be received. We see it a lot. We see it a lot. Some of you have had things spoken over you that have marked you deeply. And it has created a sense of fear of living into who you are and who you're designed to be because the fear of man is greater than who Jesus has said you are, who Jesus has designed you to be, who he has created you to be. Some of y'all... I've lived through some serious trauma. Some of you haven't, that's okay. Some of you have though. Some of you have lived through some serious trauma and that has altered 
the way that you're able to trust, the way that you perceive people and relationships, what you believe will rule you. I have kind of a crazy story. It's not that wild, but it's kind of wild. How I've been able to see the goodness of God moving and working in my life in some crazy, miraculous ways. I, um, like I mentioned, grew up in a Christian home, have a deep love for my parents. I cannot say I always felt that way. We had some really hard seasons. They were doing their best to raise eight children that weren't their own, that 100% they called their own. Kids from Korea, Guatemala, Haiti, Mexico, United States, mixed kids, colored kids, all the kids. But some of my trauma comes from the church. I remember being at a youth camp with my church that I still love and have a good, good relationship with some of the leaders over there and being taught to each their own kind. So me as a mixed baby did not have a permission to marry a white woman. Thank you, Jesus, he broke that because I'm married to a white woman and she bomb, she mine, all of it. I love it. Couldn't be more thankful. Could not be more thankful. I grew up in a culture where if you screwed up, the hammer came down. Guess what? God breaking that ideology of me being with a white woman has been the greatest gift because she has been one of the deepest, most meaningful examples of grace in my life. Huh. Remember, freshman year of college, finally moved out of the house. I so desperately wanted to do music and my parents were like, no, you will get a degree. And I was like, no, I'm gonna do music. And they were like, listen to us. I was like, okay. Um, so I went to NAU and uh, Northern Arizona University, for anyone who didn't know what that acronym meant, um, and uh, met my wife there, by the way. How flippin' cool. I wanted to go a totally different direction. So glad I went there. So my freshman year of college, I'm going wild. I join a fraternity. I'm like, out of the Christian Bible. I meet my wife, and she's like, you crazy. And I'm like, I like you, but I'm crazy, and I don't want to settle down. And she's like, you crazy. And I'm like, yes, I am crazy. And then we like fought, and we didn't even like each other. It was wild. Um, but that freshman year of college, I went to a father-son retreat with my best friend and uh, his father. And we... Um, Man, God started a really cool work. I remember going to this father-son retreat and sitting there in this teaching and they're talking about fathers and relationships with fathers and all this stuff. Something in me for the first time broke. I knew I was like angry, but I didn't know I was that angry. You know, like I was angry, angry. And I remember running outside onto this big balcony um, I just begin to weep and my best friend's dad comes out and he's with me and I start talking about how much I hate people, 
hate my dad, hate my life, hate my mom, my birth mom, how dare they? All this vengeance and all this anger just coming out, welling up, no idea where to put it. And for the first time in my life, in that environment, I finally recognized and realized how angry I was, like angry at people. That's all I could handle in the moment. And I'm sure there's a lot of other things that other people would have been like, you need to deal with this now. I wasn't ready, but I was ready to, I was ready to, to, to learn that. I was ready to hold that. From that, the Lord did a really cool work. The next year, I ended up having the opportunity to sign a recording contract to move to Nashville and start touring. Got to sit at the table with some of the biggest, baddest in the industry and learn a ton. And what he did in that space was he taught me how scared I was of everybody. That everything I did was to please. But I didn't do it in like the, like, like the nice way. I did it in like a really aggressive, assertive, I'm gonna beat everyone. Like, oh, they're a Grammy award, I'm gonna be better than them. And I would just be like a jerk in every session and stuff, you know? It was horrible. It was horrible. And the Lord peels back this curtain of my life and starts to reveal what's really going on. And I don't really know what to do with it yet, okay? I'm not ready. But he reveals the next layer, okay? And I think sometimes for the church, we see someone who walks in who's broken and they confess one sin and we wanna fix all the things. Let the Holy Spirit do his work. He's got his timing, you know what I'm saying? He's doing his work. Our job is to love. Our job is to encourage. Our job is to admonish them, to lead them forward in the way of Jesus. Let our light shine. Let our life be in a living example. We wanna fix people. That's not our job. We don't fix people. Okay? So the Lord reveals that next layer. Then the Lord asks us, me in the middle of the night, I wake up and he says, you're moving back to Phoenix. And I turn to my wife and I say, baby, I think we're supposed to move back to Phoenix. And she was like, I've been waiting for you to say that. And I'm like, oh, me with my publicist, my manager, we just have all the conversations like we're leaving. And people are like, you're crazy. You're going to throw away everything you've built. And like, I don't care. Within a week, we had either gotten rid of stuff or like stacked it at the apartment we lived in. We were able to find somebody to take over our lease so that we didn't have to continue to pay the lease by promising to pay two of their months. Um, And in Nashville, they have a rule where you can't double lease a property. And we found that loophole. I don't know how we found it. Grace of God. Move back to Phoenix and I go on staff at a church. Whoo! Nothing will expose your trauma like diving into ministry. And I realized, holy cow, I have a whole nother basket of trauma that has to be dealt with, a whole nother layer. And I didn't realize so much of this stuff that I had anchored as absolute truths because they were spoken over me as a child that as I searched the scriptures and as I started having conversations with way more brilliant leaders, like unbelievable men of God and women of God and sitting at their table, I started realizing, holy cow, the entire framework that I've built my life on is shambles. Every ideology that I've held on to is busted. So after almost a half a decade of being on staff for that church, I resigned, I stepped out, and I went crazy. I didn't have a compass anymore. I wasn't living by this moral, this moral framework that had been passed down to me. And I'd seen so much hurt and so much brokenness in the church. I didn't want anything to do with it. And I ran. 
Now bear with me, I keep talking about the church. It's gonna come full circle, okay? Bear with me. And I begin to put the God of performance, the God of acceptance, the God of success before everything in my life. And I went head, like head first into the mainstream world and began to do music. Kind of held two jobs, was on the financial side, doing residential mortgages and then doing music. And I could travel and do stuff, you know, because I could work remote. Um, and I felt like everything that I had dreamed about, everything that I had held dear, everything that I wanted was finally coming true. Like I was finally there. I was being invited to sit at the table with some of the, some, some really big names in the industry, which was really cool. I was really stoked about it. The producer that was, we were having conversations with, that was taking a keen interest in us and starting to do a little bit of like conversation and mentoring with us. I think he had three of the five top five songs on top 40 radio at the time. We were stoked. And we were still just a small D-level band, still climbing the ladder, right? Waiting for the big break. And I'll never forget, I've gone wild, drinking way too much, lost my mind like wanting to dive into the dumbest things spaces for comfort I didn't know where to go how to be I'm married with kids y'all and I am just throwing it all away just throwing it all away I remember play the show in Hollywood and uh, we go back to the producer's studio after the show and it's like, a, it's like a movie, you know, like where all the people come back to a studio after a show and it's like, you know, it's like a party. And I'm sitting down with him and he's like rolling a bunch of joints and laying them out for everybody. And uh, we're like talking about the show. And um, he's giving me feedback about being a front man and how to have charisma and poise on stage and how to capture the crowd and different movements and when to leave the stage and when to be on the stage. And there's a couple songwriters with him that are talking about song structure and form and how to be, how to be more honest and how to, all this stuff, you know? I remember walking out of the room, kind of circling through the studio, just mingling with people, trying to meet, do that networking thing. Then I come back in to this, this big hallway that's between like the main studio and this outer, outer area, and both of my bandmates are standing there. <laughs> And I can tell that they're torn. Like, they don't know what to do because there's just so much going on. And they're good men. And there are moments where I wanted to jump off the deep end. And every time I wanted to step into some crazy stuff, Josh, who loved Jesus, would show up. I'd always be like, Buzzkill. Was the Lord protecting the whole time? I see his hand working the whole time, orchestrating all this stuff the whole time, constantly trying to turn my head back to him, constantly trying to turn my head back toward him. So I walk back in, Josh and, and, and this other bandmate are standing in the hallway, and I want to go back in. I'm getting ready to go back into the, this, the main studio to, to hang out with this producer and these people, and I'll never forget it, this, this voice deep in me that says, Today you choose your career, your family. 
Within 45 days, we called it quits. I'll never forget one of the most beautiful moments of my life, sitting upstairs at our house in Phoenix, and my two daughters coming and just loving me as I wept because I felt like I was giving away everything that I had worked for, everything that I had fought so hard for. And the truth was, what he was really asking me to do was to have no other gods beside him. So I finally, like, I turned a corner. And the wife approached me and she says, you need to start dealing with some of your demons. Thank God for a strong woman. Come on, y'all. Like, you know, the absurdity of stuff that she had to navigate basically as a single mom while I ran around playing rock star. The anchor. Because I didn't buy the lie that as a half black, half white man, I couldn't marry a white woman. And then I met that white woman by obeying my parents and going to NAU. And then I married that white woman and she transformed my life by being exemplifying the grace of Jesus in my life. And let me tell you, her parents, holy smokes, what they had a war through. Watching, watching their son-in-law just go crazy. Be hurtful. Hurt people, hurt people. And I was hurt, and I was hurting people, burning bridges. And to see the grace of God work through their life and be the testament of the goodness of God in my life, I cannot, I don't have enough gratitude in my being to express how I feel. And I remember my wife says, you need to deal with your issues. And I, so I start going down the process of trying to find my birth dad. I end up finding him and uh, that connection, uh, you know how you create an idea of how things maybe will or won't go or whatever. And it, it exceeded my expectations. Um, it didn't go great. And um, <laughs> I left that, that first meeting, like, not sure where to put it. Like, he wasn't mean or anything. It just, it was just hard. And I didn't know where to put that emotion, where to, what to do with it. And so I remember we ended up connecting with some friends of ours who let us come to their house that night and process. And he, he was born out of an affair like I was. Um, his mom was strong. She kept him, um, raised him as a single mother. And he, about a year, year and a half prior, had found his birth dad and gone through a very similar kind of experience, like your world's just never going to meet mine. So we're sitting there, we're having a conversation, we're sitting out at, at the, the, this table outside behind their pool, it's kind of like the house, the pool, and then this like gazebo that we're sitting under, just talking about all this stuff. Gosh, the way the Lord, this is my story. Some of this that I'm about to share is pretty crazy, okay? This is my story. This is the goodness of God in my life, Okay. So I'm sitting at this table and we're talking about our stories and we're both kind of grieving together, you know, because we don't, we don't know where to put this emotion. And, and then I just, I have this moment where, where the world just starts spinning 
really fast. Like I'm on a, like I'm on a roller coaster just like spinning. I hate roller coasters that's just straight spin. I love roller coasters. I don't like spinning roller coasters. And I'm spinning. And all of a sudden, I'm lifted up out of my body and I begin to watch myself mature and grow and become my birth father. And then he has a son. And then that son grows up and becomes me. And then I become my birth father and the cycle repeats and repeats and it's generation after generation after generation. And I begin to see these pathways of decision and opportunity where I have the opportunity to make a decision, good or bad, whatever. And I'll make a decision and all of a sudden it unveils a whole nother layer and a whole nother layer. And it's just like, now I'm like, I feel like there's like 30 alternate universes all happening at one time. My brain is trying to take it all in. I feel like I'm on drugs, but I'm not. And it is wild. And all of this stuff is just spinning and spinning and all of these decisions, all these choices that have been made, all of these choices that are gonna come, they're all before me. And then all of a sudden it just pauses. And I hear this voice that just says, you're not the sins of your father. And I get up and I start puking, violently, just vomiting all over. And my friend is like, what the heck? And he gets my wife and she comes up there like, what the heck? And then I have like a few like little moments of coming to kind of here and there, but for the most part, I'm done. I'm done for the night, pretty much blacked out. I get home by the kindness of my wife. I wake up the next morning, she sits down with me and she says, what happened last night? And I tell her, super vivid at that time, so I paint the picture of like all that I saw. And something broke, man. The love of Jesus just like broke a chain that I had been bound to from the day I was born. This fear of being a husband and a father, and I still had a lot of work, okay? We're getting to, I still have a lot of work yet to be done in my life. But what happened that night changed my life. It shifted my desire. I wanted to be a husband again. I wanted to put the work in. I wanted to be a father. Things begin to change. I still had a lot of wounding. I still have a lot of wounding. There's still a lot of trauma. But the, there was something that broke. A couple months later, we found out we were having a son. And the Lord began to just reveal the heart of a father in a way that I just didn't understand. And it's not absent of my, my adopted father not loving me. He did. He loved me with all that he had. He loved me with everything that he was capable of loving me with, deeply, meaningfully. What we believe will rule us. So now I'm like, okay, God, you have my attention. You have my attention. I still don't want to go back to the church. I'm scared. But you have my attention. We started a pretty cool journey. We started going back to church as a family more. Started poking our toe in, right? The Holy Spirit's doing his work in his timing. You know what I'm saying? We want to rush things in his timing. Almost two years to the date, I'm sitting, or I wake up early in the morning. I go out in my backyard. It's about 5.30 in the morning. And um, I have another open vision. Some stuff that kind of led up to this and then this like scream, for lack of a better term, like a hologram screen like comes out of the sky and rests in front of me 
and I began to see a reel of all of the trauma and all of the hurt that I had gone through in my life. Some of it that was real trauma and some of it was perceived trauma, right? And it's all playing before me and I start like having an out loud conversation with God of like, yeah, this is why, this is why I'm scared, this is why I'm hurt, this is why I never wanna go back. And then he literally just takes my life and he lays it frame by frame over all the stuff he just showed me. And how in every circumstance that I saw, I participated in two. I was the same. I had cast brutal judgment on people. I had participated in some crazy sins and still called myself a Christian. I had been hurtful, harmful. I had had other things that I worshiped and idolized. And I began to just weep. I don't know what to do with all this information. I don't know what to do with it. And out loud, I just say, Jesus, what am I supposed to do with this? What am I supposed to do with this? And he said, nothing. I created you to worship. What people don't know is that two and a half years, he took it. My guitars, keyboard, everything had gone in the closet for two and a half years. I didn't write, I didn't play. The only time I really played the piano was when my son was born. I'd sit at the piano to like point the keys, you know, and try to do little things for him to play. I had nothing. It had been t- literally the desire and the passion for music, worship, all of it was gone. I would sit. We'd, we went to CCV, which was a really safe place for us to heal during that season. And I would just sit and worship. It was like nothing was on here. I'd intellectualize things, but nothing, nothing going on. And that moment he goes, I created you to worship. It was like this fire that I cannot explain erupted within my being. And I run inside and I tell my wife, I'm created to worship. And she's like, <laughs> like clarify what that means when you say worship. <laughs> What were you doing in the garden? Um, that led us on a really intense journey of like seeking, okay, Lord, you have our attention. What does this mean? Which ultimately led us to a tremendous amount of healing because I recognized and realized, man, like I have misappropriated my hurt for the church because of my own story and what I believed. I'm just as broken as you are. And yet how quick I was to cast stones. Now some of the trauma I went through was pretty messed up. Let's be honest, okay? Things spoken in the name of Jesus, that weren't from him, okay? So let's, let's be honest about that. That, that. that really happened. But I didn't have the ability to separate that King Jesus was not this false ideology. And what I believed ruled me. And ultimately... <laughs> That led us to facing our greatest fear, being honest, going back on staff at a church. And here we are, what a blessing, what a gift. I said it at the beginning, who Landon has been in my life over the last three years has been revolutionary for me and my family. To have a senior leader who's also my friend that I can share my sins with, 
Because guess what? We all have sin. No pedestal, no platform makes anybody exempt from brokenness and from sin. Christians shouldn't be known for their perfection. They should be known for their repentance. Being quick to repent. I'm in covenant relationship with a woman that now I can be honest with. When I'm struggling with my sexuality, I can talk to her about it. And we're gonna go before Jesus with that stuff. And we're still learning what does that look like and how do we do that better? Last night, I'm able to tell her, I'm freaking out. I gotta go talk to people tomorrow. (laughs) She prayed for me, man. That wouldn't have happened five years ago. That wouldn't have happened 10 years ago. Like we were, we were walking through the thick of it. What other gods? What are you turning to first? Is he your safe place? And if so, should not this house be a safe place where people can walk in with their stuff, be honest about it, and we love them through it, knowing that the Holy Spirit is doing a work in his time. You know what I'm saying? We've created, we've created a God of perfection that cannot be attained. We've created a culture of fear. We're coming to a place of worship is no longer a safe place, but a place where you gotta make sure that after the argument in the car on the drive here, you put on the mask that says you didn't have the argument. Now, obviously there's stewardship. I'm not saying people should come walking in throwing crazy things and doing wild, like, hey, like, you know, stewardship, let's, you know. But honest, real. Is Jesus your savior? your safe place. And then the second question I ask, because I think sometimes we like the idea of that or we're still trying to reconcile that. He also wants to be Lord. Some of us, we, we, still, got, we still got stuff. It's time to deal with it. Not, not a mean way, just it's time to deal with it. The thing he's prompting, I'm not talking about going and trying to take a whole inventory of your entire life. That, that's the Holy Spirit's job. But some of you, you just got stuff and it's, it's, time to just, it's time to deal with it. Let the kindness and the goodness of God meet you in those places. Let the spirit of pride be broken off of the people of God. If you can't be honest, you're not going to get saved. If you can't get honest,
We gotta be honest. Honest with ourselves. Jesus already knows. We gotta be honest with ourselves. That's why it says capture your thoughts, renew your minds. Like that's the part we get to play. We don't save ourselves, we don't redeem ourselves. We gotta, he says he stands at the door and he knocks. He's not kicking it down, he's not busting off the hinges. He just stands at the door and he knocks. And he says that when we open that door, he'll come and dine with him, or dine with us, and we will dine with him. What do you turn to first? What are your gods? What are your judges? Is it the perception that somebody might judge you? Think you're silly or ridiculous? In First uh, Peter, it says this. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. Humility takes strength. Honesty takes humility. When we humble ourselves and we cast our cares, I love it. He takes that stuff. We can cast it on him because he cares about us. He cares about your story. He sees you. He sees wherever you're at. Whether you feel like you're standing in a white tower or whether you feel like you're living in the mud. He sees your story. Like legitimately, he already knows it. But is he your safe place where you can come humbly and cast all your cares? Cast all of it. I'm gonna close with this. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. This is a call out, okay? You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. What an awesome picture. Now we live with like switches we flip. So just imagine if you just went through your entire house and you just put blackout baskets over every light bulb in your house. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand and it gives light for all who are in the house, all who are in your proximity. I think I'm gonna do something really audacious and bold today, okay? This is gonna cost you something. I think, and this is, I'm creating a little bit of extremes here, but I think there are three people sitting at the table. And I think we all fit somewhere within this scale, okay? 
Some of you have run the race really well and you're letting your light shine. Well done, well done. And I think Jesus still has maybe some more he wants to continue to do in your life. He might wanna reveal a new way he wants to grow you up or a new area he wants to heal. The work is never finished, right? We're always a work in progress, but well done. Some of you, you're running the race really well. Thank you. Thank you for being a light in a really dark world. Some of you, you you've, you've asked Jesus into your heart. You've, you said that prayer and you meant it with everything in your fiber. That, that stuff was real. It had gravity. But you're terrified of people's perception of you, of what it might cost you or look like. And so you've hidden, you've hidden your light under a basket. And I, th- I think for some of you today, it's time for that basket to be removed. And for you to declare like, I will shine my light before all men. And remember, this is the light of Jesus. This is the work that he is doing in and through you. This is you partnering with him in relationship. And it'll cost you. And the third group is maybe you go like, I don't know if I've ever accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Or maybe even a stream is like, I don't even know what the heck is going on right now. (laughs) But I've been running for long enough. I have had all sorts of gods. Gods of pleasure. Gods of success. Gods of comfort. All these things that just have not lived up to the expectation that you were hoping. And you're at the end and you go, yeah, this Jesus guy, it's time. I want my lamp lit. And he'll take you through a process. You don't have to know everything. But I think today is that day. And so this is really scary to do, but we're gonna do it, okay? I wanna invite you, let the fear of man fall off your shoulders. Let the burdens of yesterday have no authority. The sun is set free, is free indeed. Okay? So today, if you feel like, yeah, I, I asked Jesus into my heart, I've been living as a Christian, and I am scared to death. I'm living with the basket over my head all the time. I'm gonna ask you to stand up and with your mouth declare, I wanna shine before men. It's time to like move out of this place of lukewarm, you know? The world's got enough. The world's got enough. It's this really cool invitation of us. We got broken stories, we're journeying together, but it's him. But if we can't get honest about it and start sitting at the table where we give him permission to do the work that only he can do, we continue to sit with the basket over our head, sitting in darkness. And maybe for some of you, if you're like, I don't know what's going on, but I think I'm ready for this Jesus guy. 
with courage. May the fear of man fall off your shoulders. I just want you to declare, like, today, I want to be, I want to be, I want to be set on fire for Jesus. I want to call him king. I want to call him Lord. I'm just going to ask you to stand. I just want to pray over you. If you've never made that decision, I think it's worth it. I'm just going to let that sit. You can do either one. Let your light shine or ask Jesus into your heart.